welcome to episode 36 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are back with another exciting chapter of four grown men talking about their cameras. First up, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, the man who sells everything he buys, Mr. Paul Reibel. Hey, Paul, is it true you have both an Etsy store and an eBay store? I do. I have both. And sometimes they get confused. From Sydney, Australia, the man who never sells anything is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Is it harder to buy something when you can't pretend to tell yourself that you'll just sell it later? No, it actually makes it much easier because you just buy and buy and buy and then... Yeah, and then you get told to stop. And finally, from Gainesville, Florida, a place where buying cameras takes twice as long to get to as anywhere else, is Anthony Rue. How are things going tonight, Anthony? Well, other than the Jacksonville USPS hub being the worst black hole of the U.S. post office service, things are going okay. I had a, a good weekend. I got to go to a, a, a local concert that was uh, originally started out as a Tom Petty uh, birthday bash, but became sort of an Americana and and Roots uh, Music Festival. And I got to take amazing photographs of Mavis Staples using my Roloflex SL35E. That's awesome. It's great to hear. I've seen a couple of pictures already. They look great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm about 12 images scanned in it so far and everyone a winner. All right. Well, our last few episodes have been quite good. Uh, last week, we talked about Foatlander and it was we had some great feedback from everybody. I had a lot of fun with all the people that participated. We had a record number of people joining us on that one. Want to thank all the people who've commented in the various groups and offered us suggestions on what brands they want to hear next. Through a process of elimination, AKA we just picked something. Tonight, we're going to eventually get around to Minolta. But before we do that, we got a couple people in the waiting room. So let's open up the doors and let them in. All right, we got some familiar faces, I see. Uh, Mark Faulkner's back. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Doing well. Feeling better, man? Yep, feeling a lot better. Awesome, great. And Alex Likes. How you doing, Alex? Hey, doing okay. All right. And Bill Smith. We got some double representation from the Great White North, huh? Hey, how's it going, Mike? Mike? I knew we said Minolta, and we probably like, oh, Bill's going to get excited. So uh, I'm a Nikon fanboy, but I, I I love and appreciate Min- Roker Glass. Yes. Yeah, that's quite good. And I see Mario Piper. Hey, Mario. Hey, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Hi, how's it going? It's been a while since we've seen you on the show. How are things going with you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Gotta love Minolta. How's your podcast going? Good. Uh, getting ready to record an episode uh, this coming weekend. We have a large format photographer. Going to post a Zoom link and we'll all jump in. <laughs> I'd love to have you on. Uh, we do it on uh, Skype. I haven't figured out the whole Zoom thing yet, but... Okay. <laughs> It's yeah. quite chaotic. All right. Well, it's good to have everybody here. It uh, looks like Bob uh, Rodoloni just jumped in too, so I'll click the button and let him in. But I think we got a nice round of people. We got nine people, so we have the Brady Bunch look for the for the Zoom call. Hey, Bob, how you doing? How you doing, Mike? You pretty excited to talk about Minolta today? Why not? <laughs> you know, before we get started, something that I thought of bringing up once before that I don't know if, if I'm weird or I just thought like maybe we kind of have a fun way of starting off with weird quirks or strange things maybe we do. So when I do, uh, when I have to load my film in a tank or I'm doing anything that requires the lights to be off, I don't have a proper dark room in the basement. There's just a bathroom on the other side with no windows. So close the door, turn off the light, shove a paper towel into the door. It's pitch black in there. And I don't know why I do this, but every time I'm like loading film from the tank, I shut my eyes. I'm already in a room that's completely pitch black, but yet I always do it where I close my eyes 
in a room that's already in complete darkness. And I've, I've caught myself doing this multiple times. And, and I would just, I think it's weird. Like, why do I turn out or why do I shut my eyes when I'm doing stuff in the dark? So I didn't know if like any of you guys, I see a few people smiling. So maybe I'm not the only one. Does anybody else do that? Mm-hmm. Mario shaking his head. Mark yep. too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I do it when I'm loading four by five film. I've got the dark bag going. I've got the lights out just to make sure there's no extra light around. Yeah. I stick my hands in the dark bag. And I still close my eyes. Maybe there's some kind of psychological link between your body functions better doing things with your hands if you just shut your eyes, regardless if there's light or not. I don't know. Back when I was in cave diving, we would do uh, drills, like light drills in the cave. Now, when you're in one of these underwater caves and you turn a light off, it is as black as is physically possible. Like you actually see like the sparkles behind your eyelids. I would close my eyes doing line drills in the complete darkness of a cave. So yeah, I do that with my film bag as well. Well, it probably cuts down on distractions also. In other words, if you if you close your eyes, you're not being distracted by whatever might be going on. You might be you might be worried about a little bit of light coming under the door or whatever. Yeah. If you close your eyes, you're not worried anymore. All right. Well, is it is it really bad that I take my photographs with closing my eyes as well? Just to, <laughs> to do that? Or is that, is that a problem? <laughs> Only when you're using a box camera, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad I brought that up because I, I I thought of it like a couple of months ago. I was like, I should bring that up on one of the shows and see if uh, um, I'm the only person that does it. But it sounds like that's actually more common than I thought. If anybody else has any strange habits they do when loading or developing or anything, uh, feel free to throw it out there. Maybe you'll find out that you're not the only person that does it. Well, the interesting thing is, is that I don't do anything like that with um, when loading film. But when I'm shooting digital, I do my best to not even load the digital images onto my computer until like 24 hours after I take them. So it's like I have to wait for them to develop or come back from the lab before I actually sit down and work for them. So you have like a a, a mandatory resting period for digital files before you're allowed to look at them. That's right. Well, they they look better after they've cured. (laughs) (laughs) The pixels have to ferment a little bit in there. But on that, there's actually a really good reason for that because you need that separation from when you actually start going through what you've shot. Otherwise, you're in the moment still. You're still, you've got the emotional attachment to the pictures you've taken. You're likely to keep things that you really shouldn't. Yep. Uh, that, that separation of 24 hours or even more does actually help in that decision-making. People yell at me all the time when I do take digital pictures. It takes me sometimes weeks before I even take them off the memory card. But there's that's not due to any self-discipline of any kind. I'm just lazy. Wayne joined in. I don't see a last name, but is that Wayne Shipers? Did I say that right? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult name to pronounce. Oh, okay. All right, Wayne, welcome back. You've been on the show before. It's been a little while. Uh, refresh my memory. Where are you calling from? Belgium. Belgium, so okay. 2 a.m. over here. Yeah. Before we start chatting all things Minolta, does anybody have anything they want to bring up, ask, share? Should we just start Minolta? Do you want me to go over some history? Like, what What do you want to do? Nah, let's just talk. Let's just talk. All right, go ahead. How about that? How about this, Bob? You got one of those? Used to a long time ago. I I picked a couple of these up uh, uh, last week. And uh, for the listeners, that's actually a TopCon that Paul's holding. It's a Topcon Super D black paint, and uh, it has the longest throw of any camera that I've ever seen. You're going almost to the to absolutely dead square, 90 degrees on the film advance to get it to, uh, to go all the way forward, but you can do a double stroke on it. 
Is that how the RE Super is? Does it go this far? Yeah, but it's so smooth that it's a pleasure having yeah. the longer. Well, the, the Super D and the RE3 are the same camera. I believe so. Yeah, just different markets. Yeah, it's, in the U.S. it was a Super D. And I still can't figure out exactly what the Super DM is because this one has the motor drive hole. So it's, it's got to have, uh, it, it takes the motor. So the, the M is another model. And I just haven't quite got my head around what the difference is. So according to this MikeEckman.com website, uh, there was a comment by a person named Emil Schilt, Schlitt, Schilt, who said that the DM had an improved motor drive mount on the bottom of the camera, which allowed it to work with a faster electric motor that Topcon had released. Oh, so okay. they, cool. they, the previous one had the motor mount, but the DM had a better motor mount. All those cameras differ from the RE Super in that they, they have a fixed penaprism. So I know they were more like slightly lower end or not top of the line. They weren't they weren't gunning for the Nikon F like the RE Super was. So it's it's got a fixed prism, but it still has the CDS meter. It still uses the exact uh, lens mount, right? Yeah, it's exact amount. The uh, I also at the same time I got this one, I got a D1, which is uh, also the uh, you know exact amount, but it, like you say, it's a fixed prism, so there's no interchangeability. And the screen on it is, is much darker. This screen is really very bright. It's interchangeable screens as well as prism. It's it's really quite bright. The, the weird thing about this camera is uh, the metering on it. There's a, 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 a box and a wheel that moves. And as you move the aperture, there's a, a, a shroud or something inside that moves and sort of disappears. Um, whereas the D1 is a needle and a donut, you know, just like your normal you know, match needle type cameras are. So the nice thing about the, the 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 cameras are okay, but the lenses are really, really good. Yeah. Those RE top core. So it's funny you mentioned that because we've talked about top core lenses before and they're excellent. Like they're they're A-list, right? And mm. whenever you look for top uh top core lenses, you got to be careful that you get the RE ones and not the UV mount lenses because Topcon made at their Tokyo Kogaku made the RE mount cameras which are all great they had focal plane shutters they were usually built to high quality standard uh but then there were the leaf shutter top cons and those have we'll just say lackluster reliability but i found is uh, is is the glass any good on them though yes i think so I, they are yeah yes i have the top con this is called the ic1 so this was like one of their last hurrah cameras uh it uses the uv mount so it is the exact same lens mount as the leaf shutter top cons, but it has a focal plane shutter. Uh, I cannot open the film compartment on this one because I have film in it currently, but this one works. I'm one for one on them. So I, I don't know if I'm just really, really lucky, but I've had a bunch of Unirexes. Um, I had this thing called the Topcon Wink Mirror. I think it was called Wink Mirror S I reviewed that was messed up. Um, I know Johnny Sisson used to say like they had a box full of UV mount top cores at central camera that were all broken. So like a lot of leaf shutter SLRs of that era, the leaf shutter SLRs don't hold up well, but they apparently got the message in one of their last models is the IC1. So the reason I bring it up is if you do find yourself with a bunch of the UV mount lenses, they are good. The glass is probably just as good as the RE glass but it's a completely different mount and you need that one camera with a focal plane shutter if you want to try and use them. Well, the other problem with UV lenses, and I know this because I just found out 
I had a uh, one of the, my buyers sent me a message and said, uh, "Do you have a hundred millimeter f4 in the UV mount?" And I said, "Yes, I do." And he says, "Would you mind going to take a look at it to make sure that the aperture is closing down?" So I did, and it wasn't. And uh, I said, "How did you know it wasn't?" He says, "Because I have four of them, and none of mine are closing down either." I shoot with those lenses on the Sony using a uh, Ramir makes an adapter to mm-hmm. fit them, in, and I've been yeah. shooting. With them. They're good. They're very good lenses when they work. You know, I was just shooting my RE Super this weekend at the at this concert. I was shooting some uh, color film through it, and you know that 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 fifty eight one point four is a cult lens. It is expensive. I got lucky and and found somebody that that had a, a Japanese version of the RE Super up for sale, and they didn't know what they had on the camera, and I picked up the uh, the one point four for basically the the cost of the the uh, the body of the camera. Um, but if you you know, the, the 1.8 lens is fantastic and can be had for a third, a quarter, the cost of the 1.4. And then if you step outside of that, the, the 135, which I think it might be a 3.5, uh, is a fantastic 135. Uh, there's actually a 200 that you can usually find for, you know, under $75. And it's, it's, a, it's a great, like, you know, long telephoto. And then I recently picked up, uh, if you're very patient, I found a, a, the 35 uh, for 45 bucks. So you just have to be patient and lucky. Uh, and, you know, and, and really what, what it helps is if you, if you learn all the different iterations that take the RE lenses and look for the cameras and not the lenses and find a, a camera with the lens for less than the lens sells by itself. Because if somebody's selling it as a lens, they're selling it for the mirrorless market. Uh, and the price yeah. is going to be high. But if you have somebody that's just selling an old camera, uh, you're going to have a better chance of finding that lens at a fraction of the cost. And it's just, I really, I'm just, I'm in love with these lenses. You know, they, they, they really are all they're cracked up to be and they don't have to break the bank. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, I, I could have swore I brought this up before, but since I can't remember when I said it, uh, the Topcons, even though they do use the exact amount, they are not 100% compatible with all exact lenses. I know this from experience because if, well, first of all, the top cons all have a much larger, physically larger mirror. The reflex mirror goes much closer to the front lip of the camera than on a real exacta does. Um, But uh, if you have any kind of lens where even a tiny bit of it extends into the lens mount, when you um, focus the lens to infinity, it's going to hit the mirror. And I have, I don't have it handy. Otherwise I'd grab it. But in exact amount, I have a Schneider Xenon 50 F2 in exact amount. And I, I, I mounted it to my Topcon. I have a picture of it on my site because it's the Schneider is probably the smallest exact amount lens I've ever seen. I mean, it literally looks like a retina lens that they mounted an exact lens mount to. So it's this tiny block of brass and glass mounted to this behemoth of an SLR. And it just looks kind of funny. Um, and it works fine focused close because the lens is pushed out from the body. But if you focus it uh, to infinity, a tiny bit of the lens extends into the mirror box. And when you try to fire the shutter, the mirror will hit it. So uh, you do have to be careful due to the enlarged mirror on those Topcon SLRs. Yeah, these are really nice cameras. Um, I've talked about them before. Uh, I think it was you, Howard, you commented on how smooth the film advance or film oh, yeah. advance lever is. Yeah. Um, and one thing that is nice too, one one way Tokyo Kugaku beat um, Nippon Kugaku feature for feature is the meter in this camera is in the body. So you still get the meter even with like a waist level finder. 
Yeah. Whereas um, it wasn't until the F3 where um, you had a Nikon F series with the meter in the body. So uh, I don't know how often people would do that, but if you like waist level shots, you can still use the meter regardless of the prism you have mounted or, or finder. I, I also found that the way that the prism slides on, not only on Topcon, but on Miranda's as well, it's, it's right. sort of a nicer implementation than Nikon's got all these, you got to push two things at the same time and right. lift the back before you lift the front. And yeah. the, the slide on slide off is, is nicer, I think. Hey, Mike or Bob, uh, I've got a question. What other cameras had Topcon lenses or top core lenses? They made lenses for other cameras besides Topcon. Yeah, they had like like uh, thread mount lenses for the rangefinders, didn't they? Well, they they did M thirty nine lenses. I know Leo Taxes. Some, didn't there some of the early Leo Taxes come with uh, yeah Topcon lenses? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I understand. Okay. Also, the Horseman the Horseman view uh, technical camera line has top core lenses yeah. for it. Yeah. That's probably what Anthony was trying to get us to say. Yeah. Actually, right. I was trying to get you to say the Leo Tax because uh, okay. <laughs> Because my, my Leo Tax has the the uh, similar, which yep. is similar, yeah. And 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 our friend Bernard was like, because it's similar to the Leica lens. Um, They're very good. They're excellent it, lenses. It's a fantastic lens. Yeah, I've actually tried to get one for my. Uh, I think it was Hong, and and I apologize if it wasn't, but somebody gifted me um, a Leo Tax, and the camera works fine, but the vertical al alignment of the rangefinder is way off. So he's like, I can't handle it. I don't want to use this thing. So he just gave it to me, but it's just the body. And it's like, I want to get a, a period contemporary correct lens for it. So I've been looking for either the Leo Nons, which is the Leo tax lens or one of the similar or top core lenses. And they're, they're not cheap. You, you usually can only find them from Japanese sellers direct from Japan. And uh, they always have tiny dusts. <laughs> As a matter, you know, the thing is, historically, Topcon and Nikon actually had very similar beginnings. They both came around in the 30s. They were both optical manufacturers long before they got into cameras. During World War II, Nikon was the number one supplier of optical ordnance for all the military in Japan. You know who number two was? Tokyo Kugaku. Yeah. So they were optical first and cameras second. So they always did make good lenses, always, back into the 30s. They did the Navy. or No, no, no the Army, right? They did the army yeah, more. Army. Icon was Navy and Air Force, yeah. yeah. But then Topcon for the U.S. Navy was their preferred camera, right? Yeah, for a while. But then you know, Icon had a lot of U.S. Navy cameras too. Yeah. Especially during the Vietnam War. I think, you know, one area in which Top Tokyo Kagaku messed up, and in a way, Nippon was kind of doing something similar and that they got so busy making their Pro Series cameras, they had a hard time making anything else. Um, yeah. obviously, you know, we know that, that Nikon's continued to persevere. They had the Nicker X's, uh, they eventually moved from range finders to SLRs. They eventually made the, the Nicker mat, you know, semi-professional cameras, they succeeded, but Tokyo Hugaku got so focused on like one line of cameras that I think when they finally released those leaf shutter cameras, they were so crappy that it yeah. just killed the company and they couldn't rebound from that. They did not innovate very well either. Even the Nikon leaf shutter cameras that they made for a short period of time are, are disaster. They're just they're just yeah. paperweights. You know, they were just terrible. Yeah. I think that part of the problem with Topcon in this country was is that I don't think Bessler did very good work trying to promote no. the camera and distribute the camera. You know, it just never it never sold any numbers near with Nikon. So there are a lot of 
camera company, specifically Japanese, where they died based on the, the per- poor performance of their distributors. That's right. what killed Miranda. Yes. That's what killed that's what killed Iris. Um, Iris was uh, distributed by Calamar and Calamar was concerned only with rebranding stuff under their name. Yeah. So they would always go to the lowest possible bidder um, so that they could slap their name on it. But they were the sole U.S. distributor for Iris and uh, Iris was, was made really great cameras. I mean, honest to God, um, every Iris rangefinder, other than them usually being stiff, usually are excellent cameras. And they they couldn't get distributed because their distributor kind of screwed them. Well, you know, another good example of that is Canon. Okay. Canon had a horrible time in the United States getting a decent distributor. Nikon got lucky with Ehrenreich. Okay. During the Ehrenreich era, during the 60s and the early 70s, Canon actually outsold Nikon in Europe because they had better distributors in Europe than they had here. And it was all because of Ehrenreich was such a masterful salesman that he was able to promote it. And Nikon, once they got going, Canon could never catch up. They I thought Canon did. I thought Canon did well with Bell and Howell. Yes and no, but Bell and Howell was in, in its its dying ages. Anyway, you know, Bell and Howell was almost defunct by then. There That's wasn't true. much left on them. You know, Aaron Reich had had a lot to do with everything Nikon. He made Nikon famous in this country. Yeah, well, Bell, Aaron, Aaron Reich, Joe Aaron Reich was a smart man. Very. He, he had uh, he had two different lines. He had the red line and the blue line, and and I can never remember which was which. But one of them was basically just Nikon. The other one was also Mamiya. They distributed Mamiya RB67s and, and Bronica. Yeah, C330s, Bronica. He had K Pro Flash. K Pro, yeah. Uh, he had Sigma for a while. There was just a tremendous number of, uh, of uh, lines that, that Aaron Reich had. And uh, when uh, Nikon decided to go direct, Joe was getting old yeah. and his son w- was not in good health. And uh, so they basically just overnight closed the business. Yeah. And, and the other lines uh, went on to different distributors at that point. Aaron Reich was a special case, really. And he made the difference in this country. Uh, he really did. And they they had support, wonderful support. Uh, yeah. Bob, do you remember uh, Joe DiMaggio? Yeah. You know Joe? Yeah. Uh, Joe was uh, the king of Nikon professional systems back yep. in the in New York. Uh, yeah. in the 70s. And they were doing the Nikon school and doing all kinds of stuff that was, which I went to once. <laughs> oh, I, 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 a lot of those instructors are still good friends. Fred yeah. Sisson and Rusty Ray. And, yeah. and uh, now, isn't but, it true that like Nikon and, and Aaron Rock, Aaron, Aaron Reich, they did well on the East and the West Coast, but not quite so much in the Midwest? Like, didn't, there was more resistance in the Midwest to anything Japanese. So it was yeah. Japanese in general, not necessarily Nikon. No, it was Japanese in general. I, I have a friend, he's gone now, but he bought a camera store in Chicago that had been around since before the war. And we, he bought it like in the late 70s, early 80s. And he was talking to the owner. And the owner told him flat out, he says, well, after the war, all I wanted was German cameras. That's it. I didn't want anything Japanese. I resisted. He didn't, he didn't get Nikons until like the S2 came along. But uh, that was that was typical of the Midwest. East and West Coast were very different. Very different. Well, let's uh, can we let's segue into Minolta. What? I thought this was the Topcon episode. Well, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I'm trying to remember who distributed Minolta back in the day. I think they did it themselves. I think I Minolta. Think they may have, they may have been from the very beginning mm-hmm. their own. I think they were. I think yeah. they were. Because in the U.S., Pentax was distributed by Honeywell. Honeywell, Honeywell yeah. and Highland. Highland, Highland. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure because somebody asked that question in the group. And every evidence I've ever seen, there is a, a New York branch of Minolta, 
which now for all I know, that could have been, you know, a side project of, uh, of somebody, you know, but I believe Minolta the self-distributed and I think that that worked out well for them. But one thing, and I'll say this, so here's where we get into the history from, I don't have a, a Bob level of knowledge in Minolta, but I've, I've done enough camera reviews of theirs where Minolta was a little different, I think, than the other Japanese companies from the time. First of all, they got started in the 30s. They started slightly before Canon. The guy was, uh, his name was Tashimi. I don't remember the full name, but it was a Japanese man named Tashimi who loved German cameras. This guy was a German, a Leica fan. Uh, he loved everything coming out of Germany and he wanted to be able to make German quality cameras in, in Japan. So much so that he hired two ex-German technicians to come to Japan uh, to help him with that. And now that's a similar tactic. Nikon did the exact same thing around 1917. They hired Germans to come. Uh, there was high unemployment after both wars, but this would have been early 30s. So, you know, there was still some unemployment after World War One. It probably wasn't that hard to lure these German technicians to come to Japan and help them, you know, get better at making stuff. So the original version of Minolta was actually called uh, Nishidoku, and they started making Japanese-inspired cameras. I think the very, very first camera they worked on was a Japanese copy inspired by the Plabel Makina. Uh, and it yes. was called Minolta, right? The, yeah. the camera was called the Minolta, similar to how the first Kodak was the Kodak. And if you've seen one, this Minolta press camera, it's shot six by nine. Theo, you have your Plabel, right? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. It's, it's a beautiful camera. So it's similar, but like the, the viewfinders on the other side, I don't have one in front of me. I don't have one in the collection, but you can tell what they were making their camera off of, but it is not a copy. They basically said, all right, we're going to be inspired by a German camera, but we're going to make it our own. And that philosophy is something that if you actually look, Minolta kind of kept that philosophy throughout every camera they made practically. You know, there Theo's got his right there. So it's yeah. got a, a scissors folding mechanism. The Plabell had a screw mount. I'm, I am unsure if the Minolta shared the same mount, but it took backs, either roll film back or sheet back. Uh, very, very nice cameras, high, high quality. Um, I've never personally handled one of the Minolta versions of that, but very, very nice. But it is not a straight copy. Mike, when then, but then when they got to the auto semis and the semis, they those were copies of the Zeiss Icon cameras. They were similar. They were copies of the Iconta. But even yeah. then, like they employed rangefinder couplings that were slightly different. Mm -hmm. Like they always copied the general idea. Like you could tell by looking at it. That's a copy of this Iconta. That's a copy of the Makina. Even the autocords look like they're copies of Roloflexes. But if you really look at how an autocord works, it has the focusing rack on the bottom. You know, autocords, I have one right here. When you open up an autocord, it swings down instead of up. Roloflexes have the hinge on the top here. So when you lift up the camera, you're lifting the whole thing up. And supposedly, the reason that that's bad is that the film has to make a 90 degree turn before it ever crosses the film plane. Minolta thought, why not have it go straight from the, the supply spool across the film gate, make your image, then make the 90 degree turn and go to the take-up spool on the bottom. Now, does that ultimately make a difference? Does it somehow affect film flatness? I have no idea, but they did that. So the film transport on an autocord is opposite that of Roloflex. They had the bottom focusing rack, which was different. 
right? There's a few other things too that you know I won't get into, but you know, to say that this is an exact copy of Rolleiflex isn't true. Mike, does yours say Chiyoto on it on the faceplate? Uh, Chayoko. So Chayoko was the nickname of Chayota Kogaku, which is what a Minolta's oh, original okay. name was. So they they changed their name three times. Some sources say it actually was a completely different company. Like you'll hear uh, Nishidoku was the predecessor of Minolta. It doesn't actually say it was just Minolta's original name. I okay. don't know enough to know the difference, but because they actually changed their name to Molta, M-O-L-T-A. And Molta was actually the name of the company when they were producing the Minolta Plabo Makina. Um, and then I want to say 1937, I don't have it in front of me, is when they started creating this. And I have one of these too. So even though it says Minolta, this is actually called the Minolta Flex. The Minolta Flex was Minolta's first 6x6 TLR. One thing that I need to do further research on that I don't know is my auto cord says Chioko, C-H-I-Y-O-K-O, but my Minolta Flex says Tioko, T-I-Y-O-K-O. And I don't know that that was the name of the company. I, I don't know why it says T-I-Y-O-K-O. So if somebody does know. There are lenses made in Japan with that name also. The shutter on this says Crown Tioko also. So it says yeah. it both on the shutter. The lens is a Promar. A Promar Nippon uh, is the taking lens. And the viewing lens says Minolta Nippon. And then the lens cap says Tioko also. So it says it in three places on here. But this camera works really, really well. It's got a lever wind. So this would be like a 1930s Japanese sort of copy of the, um, the uh, Rolleiflex. It's got the focusing knob, but it's on the other side of the camera. It's not on the right side. It's on the left. But it wasn't until they got to the more advanced models where they started to deviate from that. So, yeah, I, again, I, I don't want to bore you guys with everything you could possibly just read online. But I've always liked Minolta because they kind of took the approach of we really, really like the Germans. We want to honor the Germans, but we're going to make our own version of cameras that are German inspired. And we're going to find ways to improve upon. Like I've, I've talked many, many times. I love the focusing paddle at the bottom of the, of the auto court. And the reason that that's significant to me, and I, I could be different than other people, but when I shoot a TLR at waist level, I tend to support the camera with the bottom of my left hand. And when I do that, the focusing is right by my thumb. So I don't even have to reposition my hand. Whereas when you have a Rolleiflex with the, with the knob on the left, you, you got your left hand is turning the knob. Then once you get your, um, you got your focus, right. I usually want to stabilize the camera. So I have to reposition my hand in the bottom of the camera. Cause I feel like I can hold it more steady there. And then I fire the shutter with my right index finger. If I need to adjust the focus, I have to keep moving my hands around. When you wind the camera, you use your right hand. You let you focus your camera, use your left hand. The way Minolta did it, Enrico did something similar with the diacord, except their paddles are on the sides. You can do all these motions without ever having to reposition at all your hand. And I think that that's a small but subtle improvement that the Germans just never really realized, but Minolta had done that. Some say that Minolta may have taken the idea of the bottom lever from uh, the Czech camera, the yeah. Flexilet. Flex the Flexorette. Yeah. Yeah. So I have one of those too. Those are actually really nice cameras too. Uh, I have a Flexorette 7, which you're right. It, it works almost exactly the same way. It has a paddle that moves. And somebody actually asked me once who did it first. And you are right, Howard, um, the, the Flexorettes had them before Minolta did by a couple years, actually. So whether or not 
would a small Japanese company around 1948, 49 have access to check uh, TLRs? I have no idea. Maybe, maybe not. You know, it's hard to say. So that was 48, 49. Yeah. What was their fr- the first model of the 35 millimeter? Was that the 35 model two? The like kind of the Leica clone? Right. Yeah, they had a Leica clone. And the, that Rokor lens on that camera was very, very good. Right. They had a Chayoko Super Rokor. I have a, I have a question for, for Paul and for Bob. When did you all first become aware of Minolta? Because, I mean, obviously they're cranking out cameras for the, the Tokyo market, for the Japanese market. I can't imagine there's a whole lot of Minolta coming into the States pre-war. And so post-war, uh, you know, were you all, was there a flood of, of these, uh, the, the rangefinder style cameras? Or was it really until the uh, SLRs that the Minolta name became sort of a meaningful force outside of Japan? Well, for one, one thing is that, believe it or not, right after the war, 46 and 47, Minolta was actually the biggest seller in the PX system. In Japan. Canon eventually became number two, and, and Petri was even in there, but Minolta was number one long before Nikon ever even got into the PX system. So Minolta was actually very successful. They were making a lot of cameras in 46 and 47. Nikon didn't get into the game until 48, didn't right. get into the uh, PX system until almost 50. I have this V2. That, now, this is from probably 1954, 55-ish, that we spoke about it before with the one 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 two thousandth shutter speed. But it says Minolta on the shoe. It says Chioda, and on the lens, it already says Rokor. So they were already at at least in the mid fifties. They had all three sort of uh, trademark words in play. They stopped using the Chioda name around sixty two. Uh, Wayne posted in the chat that he has a Hymatic, the um, fixed lens rangefinder from sixty two that says Chioda Kogaku on it. So that was definitely from kind of the transition era. A lot of Japanese companies change names to be known as the name of their most famous product. You know, Yashika did it, Nikon did it, Canon did it. Pretty much they all, almost all of them did it. So they didn't officially become Minolta until 62. Anything before that should be Chioda or Chioko, which is, I think, the same company. I think it's just a nickname. Um, and, and I said, I misspoke earlier. The interchangeable lens Minolta 35 was 47 but they did not start releasing the fixed lens cameras until uh, the 50s. So I would presume that the Minolta 35 was their first 35 millimeter camera. Um, But it was very similar, but not exactly, once again, not exactly the same. You know, it had a hinged rear film door, which is something, you know, the the Leicas didn't do. Um, Like, as was typical of Japanese cameras at the time, like the original Nikon rangefinder, the Minolta 35 shot 24 by 32 exposures. Um, I could explain it, but Bob, you could do a better job. Why around that time was it so common for Japanese camera makers to make that size image 24 by 32 instead of 24 by 36? Well, there's actually two basic reasons. Number one, uh, film was very, very expensive in Japan after the war. So if you could get an extra three or four shots out of a roll, that was an advantage. But the real big advantage was that it it has the same dimensions as your 8 by 10 paper. You don't lose anything when you enlarge, okay? The 24 by 36 is not enlarged perfectly to 8 by 10, even though 8 by 10 is the most common size enlarging paper. So the 24 by 32 was called the Nippon size. Nikon had it. Minolta had it. A couple others had it too. Canon never had it. But uh, Minolta actually had it selling in the PXs for a while with 24 by 32. And supposedly Kodak raised all kind of a stink about that because if you shot color slide film with that camera, 
and Kodak went to process it and, and, and mount it into the slides, eventually it wouldn't work. In other words, the spacing wouldn't be right. You end up with half frames and all this kind of stuff. But so they put pressure and that 24 by 34 dropped off very quickly. Minolta discontinued, Nikon discontinued by 49 with the Nikon M. But um, that was the reason was the economy. Film was very expensive in Japan after World War II. Very. Kind of like now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting kind of expensive. Like, well, the biggest use for film in Japan right after the war was so many of their troops came back from those South Sea islands with all kinds of, of problems, tuberculosis, fungus infections of the lungs and all this kind of thing. Uh, so they had they had literally had to take uh, x-rays of uh, like a million returning troops, and they were using up all the film to do that. Uh, the, the Canon had their x-ray cameras. Nikon had one, too. And uh, that was where most of the film stock was going. They, they couldn't afford it for anything else. The government was taking all of it. Obviously, these days, it's going to making movies. Yeah. And that's the same reason half frame was much more popular in Japan. Yes. That's why the the Bolta film and the hit film and all right. those really goofy cost of film. Cost of the film. It was the yeah. cost of film. So I mean, that's it's all part of the same reason is that they were trying to just find ways to be more affordable. And you had mentioned Bob. I promise we won't talk about Nikon too much. But when they <laughs> when they released the Nikon M, they increased to twenty four by thirty four. Right. But they also moved from seven sprockets to eight sprockets. Right. Right. So I actually, Bob loaned me one of his working Nikon M's and I shot a roll in it. And I remember, remember I I saved a strip of the film and gave it to you because I don't think you would ever actually seen it. You actually can see a much larger gap between Mm -hmm. the exposures shot on a Nikon M because even though the images are 34 millimeters wide, they still count off eight exposures. So that eight, eight sprocket wheel, right? Eight sprocket. Just so really it's, it's using, you're not getting any better economy. You're losing right. the economy. In, in an icon one, that space between the frames is even larger, of course, because it's 24 by 32, but you're not moving as much film because it's a seven sprocket hole, uh, wheel. They had to go to eight sprocket to, so they could get the, the Leica type mechanism. Eventually the S was 24 by 34. Also the first, Nikon that was 24 by 36 was the S2 in 1954, December 1954. So everything made between 48 and 52 or 54 were 24 by 34. So Bob, let me ask you, there was always there were always stories going around that that, that was caused by the by the government, the US government, mandating that there could not be standardization. But that doesn't make sense because no. the other manufacturers were 24 by 36. The thing is, is that uh, when when Nikon was supposedly, and they never, we've never found actual written proof of this, but supposedly Kodak was the one who who made the, the most stink about it, about the twenty four by thirty two, and uh, and it did happen. In other words, if you sent in a roll of transparency film, some of your stuff would not come back mounted correctly because the machines were calibrated for twenty four by thirty six, and it's all automatic. So Kodak raised a stink about it. Supposedly MacArthur Scap did something about it, but we've never been able to find the paperwork on that. And they did not actually prevent 24 by 32 from being sold in the PX system because Minolta was selling a ton of it, okay? They never stopped it. This 24 by 32 was being sold in the PX system. And almost everything bought in the PX system came back to the States at one time or another. And when Nikon decided to go to the 24 by 34, we don't know why they did that. They could have gone 24 by 36, but they didn't. They went 24 by 34. And um, they held that for like three more years. They didn't go 24 by 36 to the S2. But there was some pressure from Kodak, and supposedly uh, there were some government problems, but no one's ever been able to find written proof about that. There's no written order from SCAP saying you cannot make 24 by 32s anymore. 
and to be sold in the United States. That's the Minolta 35. So the, the screw mount Leica inspired rangefinders did not switch to 24 by 36 until the Minolta 35 model two B, which came out in I think 55. Yeah. So they 50s, went, right. they went like what Robert's saying much longer with that format than Nikon did. They just said, screw it. We're going to keep doing it, I guess. Yeah. Mike, I've got, I've got a quick idea. Uh, we've got a room full of, of 12 people here who are ostensibly all Nikon fans. We know that Nikon are not Minolta fans. We know that Minolta has been around for 80 to 90 years. Uh, scores and scores of models. Let's do a quick lightning round where we just pick a favorite uh, Minolta camera and talk about it for a minute. Uh, and that way we'll get like get it all out on the table to see what the... Uh, you know, the distinctions of, of all the different crazy types of cameras that Minolta made, because they made some pretty crazy cameras in their time. Uh, and I'm curious to hear what everybody here likes. Anthony, you and I, I think have the same favorite Minolta. So why don't you go first? The, oh, yes. I won't steal your thunder. The Super A is absolutely my hands down my favorite Minolta camera. It was possibly their attempt to to get in on the, the M3 style rangefinder. Uh, has its own proprietary uh, lens mount. It is almost as much fun to shoot as an M3. Uh, it's just it's one of those cameras that sort of slipped under the radar, and the lenses on it are fantastic. Uh, there's, a, there's a pretty good, what do you think, is it seven or eight lenses that are available for it? And uh, I've not yeah, found one that just doesn't you know, outperform. Yeah, I, I, I can't say anything more than what you have. This is, uh, these are great cameras. It is a shame that this system did not catch on more because um, I think it's great. I mean, it, it feels great in the hands. The ergonomics are nice. One thing that's interesting is it has the, um, the bright window is, is on the left. So depending on how you hold your hands, sometimes you can block your window. But uh, I, I really, really like these cameras. And I know Anthony does too. So that's why I wanted him to go before me. What about you, Mario? What do you like? I started with an SRT 101 uh, when I started film like three years ago. And since then, I've gotten, I don't know, five or six more SRTs. And I've just kind of stuck with them. Um, my favorite of them is the SRT 102 and I love this, um, 58 mil 1.4, um, lens. Uh, the reason why I like the SRT 102 is just how solidly it's built. Uh, it's reliable. It's, I mean, they're common, they're inexpensive, they're no frills. They're just solid business. And I love that. I really, really love that. It gets out of the way. I think you're actually understating the solidly built bit, Mario. They're a tank. These things are an absolute tank. Absolutely. Is that a PF lens or a PG lens? This is a PF lens. Oh, those are the best. The PF I love lens it. Are just really, really high grade. Uh, they'll, I mean, they will yeah. hold up on any high-end digital uh, mirrorless camera. So which one did you say uh, was the better one? The PF lenses were the oh, first beauty. version of it. Fantastic. That's <laughs> what I've got in my hands right now. I did have to take it to the um, to my camera uh, store and or shop and get it, get the helicoid regreased because it was really really hard to turn and now it's just buttery smooth and I just love this lens. So that the one hundred twos are fine, um, but one thing I will caution: not all SRT cameras are of the same quality. They did start to get cheap towards the end. So if you, I always tell people to look. When you look at a, a SRT of any kind, pay attention to the aperture follower around the mount. If it's plastic, I would stay away from those. Yours, I'm sh the 102s, I think, are all metal. 
So if you ever find like, and, and I don't mean even you guys, anybody listening, if you're considering an SRT, and then they're still going to have great lenses, but the reliability did start to go down near the end. And the, the, the easy way to tell is if you see the, the, it's the, it's the follower. So that when you adjust the aperture, the F stops on the ring, it's how the body knows what you've selected. You'll notice that they're black plastic on the later ones. So those can break. And I've also seen on, I have a couple of, um, the uh, take-up spool, you go to wind it and it feels like it's winding, but the spool won't spin. There's like a clutch or something that dies after after time. But the early ones, like your 102, 100% agree. Great cameras. Yeah, any of the 100 series, the 200 series, they began to get some problems with them. Right. The, uh, on the, you mentioned the take-up spool on some of the, uh, uh, the late 200 series and then on into the XE series, they were a, a cheap plastic on the... Uh, where your film leader fit into the spool and they would actually break off. I mean, I've seen them. I think there are three tabs on them. I've seen cameras with all three broken. Bill Smith. Yeah. What's your pick? My pick like Mario, I have an SRT one on two, but the one, and I've also got an XE seven, but the one I, I, I enjoy shooting with is the XD 11. It's sort of like compared to the Canon a one Canon a one has its sort of design language, but the XD11 has almost all the same features, more solidly built. Yeah, they were contemporaries. And they're easier to use because you didn't have to figure out, okay, what's TV again versus AV? No, it's just aperture, shutter, manual, the end. And this, the sound of the shutter is just so darn nice. And the fact that Minolta and Leica partnered up with uh, the XE and then the XD because it was a shared platform for the Leica R-series cameras. And the other joy is the, the Acumat screen, which is so, so nice. The uh, the black chrome XD11 is probably one of the prettiest cameras ever made. I totally it's agree. Beautiful camera. The only downside to any XD camera, whether it's a 5 or an 11, is that they use that funky covering on them and they shrunk. Yeah, I'm lucky. So, Some don't. Most of them do. Right. That's yeah. annoying. They're easy to reskin, though, and it gives you the opportunity to change the color or add some snake skin or something to it if you want. Another somewhat common problem with the XD11s, but it's really easy to fix. If anybody gets one on the side of the mirror box, they use this like um, dampener. And the idea was is to minimize shake. And it would, it would soften the movement of the mirror. And over time, the dampener can get dirty, you know, dried oil, some debris in there. And you'll start to notice when you fire the shutter, there's a delay. The mirror, it, like a quarter of a second. I see Alex, you shaking your head. Have you experienced this before? Yep, absolutely. In fact, it was on one of the cameras that I borrowed from yeah. uh, Bill. I had one. If you read the review on my site, I actually had the foresight to make a video of what it was like before and after I fixed it. And you can see, so I, I hold my cell phone up to the viewfinder and I fire the shutter a number of times and there's a pronounced delay from when the mirror, I mean, this just, it doesn't affect your exposure at all because it's the mirror. The mirror is what triggers the shutter. So your speeds on your shutter are fine. It's not a problem with the shutter, so it won't mess up your exposure. But because there's a delay, you might move the camera or something so it still could screw up your thing. But then I fixed it. The fix for, for somebody who just is apprehensive about opening up a camera, I know some people just won't touch them. Uh, if you're one step beyond that, 
like to where you feel comfortable with basic repairs. It's very easy to do. It only requires removing the plastic around the mirror box. You can take the prism out and just clean it with some Q-tips, put it back together, and it'll make a huge difference. So I agree. I love the XD11. I think it's a much better camera than the A1. I like it. It's less cluttered. Even though it has the same features, it's more logical. I love they use this capacitance kind of shutter release where just the, the, the detection of your finger on it powers up the meter and it's, it's just a very gentle tap and you, you can fire the shutter. It's got a great sound, great lenses. Um, yeah, huge fan of the X-T11 also. A little earlier, Wayne was holding up an XK. There you go. Ooh. That's their pro camera. I've only seen one once in person. It's the European model, it's the XM. XM. XM, okay. So European, it was X it's XK was for the US. XK was US, XM was Europe, and X1 was Japan. And the XM is for the rest of the world. But Canada? Uh, Canada would use the same model numbers as the US because they, they sort of kind of love Minolta, how they would just sort of designate the same camera at different model numbers in different parts of the world for no other reason than to confuse us. <laughs> Wayne, do, does your XM take a motor drive? Some of them do. There was an XKM in the U.S. that that was geared for the motor. The XM motor is basically in a Minolta XM with added grip and film advanced motor. The original XM self timer is omitted, so it was like it was meant to be that way. I guess it was. Um, I don't know. Maybe people who wanted it permanently attached. I, it doesn't show that it can be removed. I had one of those once, Mike, years ago. Can it you remove the motor? Heavy. It was, yeah, with the motor attached. And I mean, it was heavy. It made a Nikon look light. Yeah. But can you remove the motor from the XK? No. Uh -uh. no okay. No. So that's that's probably the difference is that hey. with yours, with yours, Wayne, there was an optional motor drive that you could detach. No. There's no provision for a motor drive. No. Okay. All right. No, there is so that, no. All right. Uh -huh. so that was, that, that's, that's, that's one of the problems with these as professional cameras. People wanted a motor drive and it's funny that they made the same mistake that canon did because that was one of the flaws of the canon flex is there was no way to attach a motor to it right i mean there were other reasons too but did you know that canon actually had a motor design for their rangefinders? i did not know that yeah this the 16 the 17 whatever they had a motor that they had designed there's pictures of it but they never marketed it wow and they couldn't do anything with the, with the canon flexes because they had that bottom mounted trigger so wayne what what do you like about your um xm it's also a thing it's a tank. It's a what? tank, yeah. Yeah, all Minolta SLRs were solidly built anyway, so to get their pro version of what's already a solid system, is uh, it's got to be pretty nice. I've never shot one, though. During the episode, we've had um, someone join called, uh, sorry if I'm pronouncing that, your name correctly, Migsero. Yeah, hi. Is the sound coming in okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Hi, Welcome. I'm, I'm Mig. I'm from Virginia. Um, first time calling in. How's it going? All right. We finally got somebody new. Yay. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks. So my favorite is, well, so far I haven't gotten to use it yet. Uh, it's a Minolta Hymatic 7S2 and it's actually black. And Very I like nice. I like how it handles, but I had to, it's with Ryan Hansen right now to getting a CLA. So I can't show it to you. <laughs> but No, that's good. That's Those are very, very nice. That's one of their last range finders. It's much smaller than the yeah. other Hymatic series, but it's got a fast lens. Uh, yeah, Wayne's showing his full-size Hymatic. Nice. That's exciting. Do you now? Did he give you an estimate when you're going to get it back? Yeah, he he said uh, it would only be like seven to ten weeks. He said it, it was in pretty good shape actually, and he wouldn't have to do that much. Um, 
So I, I dropped off with him a couple weeks ago. So it shouldn't be too long. Yeah. You'll, I mean, obviously he'll, he'll do all the foam light seals because those are all crumbly and everything clean. Yeah. Make sure the battery contacts are clean. Cause those are, I believe they are battery dependent. I don't know hundred percent sure, but um, I am quite certain you're going to love the images you get from that thing. Oh yeah. I'm pretty excited. I, I was actually looking into getting a CL, but then uh, that came across like locally. So I, I picked it up. Yeah. The only thing you're really losing is you don't get to change lenses on yours, but um, yeah. optically they're, they're going to make great images. That's really cool. It's cool. very, it's a, it's very similar to the Konica auto S three and uh, the Hymatic seven S two are they're not identical, but they're very, very close. Oh, nice. Yeah. I really like Konica um, AR lenses. So if it's there you go. Like that, yeah. Those Hematics seem to, you know, they seem to breed by themselves. For some reason, I've ended up a whole bunch of them on my shelf. They just sort of seem to yeah. appear <laughs> every time I buy a, a, a job lot of cameras. You know, I, I honestly, I think I might even nominate the Hymatics as one of the most economical buys out there. Like those cameras go unsold on eBay for 10, 20 bucks all the time. Uh, not, not the 7S2. That one is a little bit more desirable, but like the full size one, like Wayne held up. Those cameras are great. And they, it's like the Konica Auto S2 is the same way. Uh, the Ashika Lynxes are similar. The, those full body Japanese fixed lens range finders are all fantastic shooters. Um, and they almost, the bigger ones almost always work mechanically too, even if the meter doesn't work. So, what I like about those fixed, the fixed lenses in the Japanese range finders tend to be a little wider than, like, they tend to be 40, 45. Some of them are 35, which I find if if you're going to not have interchangeable lenses, it, it's, I don't know, I think for most people shooting a little bit wider is better because you can always crop a little bit. Whereas the, the German rangefinders tend to have 50 millimeter lenses. Well, and you get wider, more uh, depth of field too. So if you're not perfect with your rangefinder, you're, you're still going to get an in focus image. Yeah. Meg, since you're a first time caller, um, how did you hear about the show? Have you been listening for a while or? Um, I've been catching up. I have a really long commute, so I've been catch. I've been binge listening. Um, okay. But I started listening maybe like uh, about a month or two ago. Um, okay. Yeah, I heard about it from Allie, so I was like, "Hey, I'll check it out." Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah, we've been trying to get her on, but she has a new baby in the house, so that's probably yeah. going to be a while. Theo's got his favorite Minolta. It looks like. Yes, I was going to say you guys can take all your professional, you know, Minoltas and your, you know, SLRs and your rangefinders and all that sort of stuff, but. You cannot have a Minolta show and not talk about the Minolta 110, um, the original one that's flat. <laughs> it looks like something <laughs> has dropped on it and it is flat. This is a superb little camera to play around with. Um, I must admit, I haven't shot with many Minoltas. I seem to have a few in the collection, but this takes 110 film. Um, it's got a zoom lens built into it. It's got a really funky looking design, uh, but shoots really, really well. I've had a lot of fun with this one and the versatility of it. And it's actually looks really awkward, but it's quite handy to hold. The one thing I don't understand is why the hell they've put the film advance on the bottom. So when you actually put the camera down, it sort of always sits a bit lopsided, which drives me absolutely batty because, yeah, I like my collection to look nice. So it just drives me batty. That's called the Mark One or Model One. They made a second version, which has a slightly more traditional shape. Mark's got one there. That's what Mark's holding up. Does, Theo, does yours have a macro setting? Can it zoom really, really close? 
Or is that only on the Mark II? It zooms down to a meter. The focus is down to a meter? Yeah, so three and a half feet. I, I'm sorry, I, I do I do recall now. It's been a while since I've shown it. There is a secondary uh, ring around the lens. Okay, so it does have a macro. To 25, to 25 centimeters. Okay, all right. Yeah, I, I, I kind of thought so, but I, I don't remember. But Mark has the second version, which looks more traditionally shaped, but they both use 110. Uh, very handsome. Very handsome cameras. Have you shot it, Theo? The one thing, yes, I've got an article on photo thinking. It's a great camera. The results are fantastic. Cool. Uh, I, I mean, for for the size of it, and uh, and yeah, it's just a lot of fun. People look at you a bit weird when you do it because it's got <laughs> it's got this little um, where the, where you actually rotate the aperture around on the side. But it, it looks like it's a light meter, but the light meter, I believe, is actually through the lens. So it's actually um, just, yeah. just they have to be funky. And of course, because we're all a bunch of nerds, as soon as uh, Theo holds up his 110, everybody's going, Minolta 16, Minolta 16. <laughs> oh, no, please, not that. All right, we got a bunch of those. Everybody's got Minolta 16s. Robert's got a bunch. Yeah, so I've got a bunch of the 16s. I love this 110. This one is one of my favorite 110 cameras to shoot with. And it just is so easy to use. But I would have to, I'd have to mention this one, though. This is a 1937. I believe it was when it was Molta. And it, has, it looks like a Pagoda when you look at it from the top down. It's and like it's a it's 127 like dual it's format. Like, yeah. It's like a bellows camera, but instead of leather bellows, yeah. it's like smaller and smaller pieces of metal that slide into one another yeah that's neat dual format with a uh with a un unfortunately missing mask which i need to 3d print one uh but this one i would like to get up and running shortly all right and and alex are you going to bring us up into the modern world are you going to uh, talk about the uh the dynex and oh there, there we go. go there we go so here we are um this is the um for north american folks it was the uh, maxim nine for europe Dynex 9, and for Japan, the Alpha 9. This is the pinnacle of professional cameras from Minolta. And my, my first film camera was a Minolta Hymatic 7S. Absolutely brilliant. Um, my first SLR was a um, SRT 102. So cheers to that, Mario. Also love the mustache. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Have you considered cosplaying as Freddie Mercury? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh boy. I was called uh, Burt Reynolds the other day. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, go. I see it now. I see it. He's kind of got like a Freddie Mercury and a Burt Reynolds. Yeah, you know. Exactly. Even my first digital camera was a uh, Konica Minolta DMH Z2, um, Z2 for you uh, American folks out there. Um, the only problem I have with my Maxim 9 is it's not one of the updated ones, so I can't use the um, SSM lenses on this. But what does that mean? It, um, it has a, um, it would be like having an internal, um, the autofocus motors in the lens instead of the body. Okay. Um, but if you have um, a Maxim 7 or a Maxim 70, uh, you can. So I actually do have a Maxim 70 as well, so... I do. I do have that option. I've never had the nine like you have, but I do have the seven and I, they're great. But one thing mm. that's really cool about the sevens is it has this LCD screen on the back. So from a distance, it looks like a digital camera, but this is a film camera and the screen can do a lot of really, really cool things that are totally mm. unnecessary. Uh, two of my favorites are in the programmed auto exposure mode. It'll actually show you a grid of F stops versus shutter speeds 
and like where it's detecting on that. And if you want to adjust it, you use the up, down, left, right, like a video game and you can oh, yeah. bump it over a little bit, you know, to try and custom. So like, let's say you're in programmed auto exposure mode and you want to get one extra shutter speed faster because maybe you're shooting something that's going to be moving like a kid or something. You can just nudge it to the right and it'll adjust your, the program to be a one step, one stop faster, but then compensate on the aperture. Uh, but another really cool feature is it actually can record uh, your exposure settings for each role. So yes. it's, it's not EXIF data, but it's like film EXIF data. So at the end of a role, you can up down and review every shot on that role. And it'll tell you what shutter speed, what uh, aperture uh, it used. And I just, for, for being a film camera, I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. And you can actually get a, um, a data back for the nine that will allow you to do it. The but same what, thing. Exactly. Uh, but what I really like is that um, the ergonomics on this camera are way better than my um, Nikon F5, uh, mostly because you have that nice thumb grip and the uh, angle on that top. But the real power is the, uh, the VC9. On my F5, my trigger is up here. On the nine, it's right there. It's a, a lot better balanced. And again, you have a, a front and a rear uh, command dial, and then your auto exposure lock and AF. Wow. And the grip allows for use of um, several different batteries, including double A's. So I can be up in uh, Timmins, Ontario, and as far away, or even Pickle Lake, Ontario, and I can stop into a grocery store pick up double A batteries and I can power my nine. Keep shooting. Alex, is that the, is that camera what they based their short lived DSLR? Like I think it was called the 7D on or the 9D. So the 7D was based on the uh, seven and the 5D was based on the uh, five. And I, I very nearly thought that the 5D would be my first digital SLR. I really wanted to get into uh, um, autofocus Minolta, but, very shortly after that, they sold to Sony, and I did not like the early Sony DSLRs. Mm -hmm. um, so I ended up going to Nikon at that point, got an F80, D70, SD300, and all from there. So um, I got into Minolta Autofocus with um, a Maxim 5000 and a Maxim 7000. Both of those unfortunately died. Um, they went up in smoke. How's the LCD display on the camera? On uh, the 9? Yeah, on Perfect. the inside. It's good. That that was the one of the weak part of those cameras was the the seven and the X were uh, nine were the uh, the LCDs bled. That would be the um that would be the uh, seven thousand. My seven thousand had some LCD bleed. Yeah, they had it. Too. My five thousand. I have a five thousand that has LCD uh, bleed as well. Um, Alex, I have a question for you, if it's okay. Um, well, two questions about the about uh, Maxim nine thousand. No, Maxim nine. Nine. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, what is the fastest shutter speed? Ooh. Hold on. It is okay. pretty darn fast. One of them went up to 12,000. I don't know if it's the nine. Am I remembering that correctly? This one goes to the maximum nine goes to one, one twelve thousandths of a second. Even more than going to 11. Wow. Yeah. Oh, this one takes it up to 12. Okay. Well, and then the second question I have is one of the reasons why I love the SRT series or any, any of those kind of cameras, the classic cameras, um, the last digital camera that I had was the Fujifilm X100. I loved the analog controls where I could choose the, the aperture and shutter speed independently of each other instead of going in, into a menu. Um, the Alpha 
uh, nine, does that, or the Maxim nine, does that have similar analog controls or does it have more of a digital or DSLR type control system? So what's interesting is that um, even though the uh, 7,000 and 5,000 went with a very um, button and dial based interface, once you started to get to the uh, 600 SI Classic, they started to go back to a more hybrid system. So I- You have the 600 SI? I don't. I really want to add one. What are you holding in your hand? This is the nine. Okay. All right. So, you, all right, so I have so the you 650. Can see, you, can, you can see the, um, the design lineage from the 600 SI to the Maxim 9. So it is very much hybrid. So um, aperture and um, shutter are controlled by uh, the command dials. Um, modes are controlled by a physical dial up at the top. I got EV adjustment settings here. Everything else is really through menus. Mario, this this is the camera you want, the 600 SI or the 650 SI. That's right. The only difference is the 650 SI has a date back, but otherwise they're exactly the same. So Minolta realized that people were apprehensive of all the old digital interface. So they released these two cameras with mechanical dials for exposure compensation, shutter compensation. The MAPS dial is a physical dial, as is a mechanical dial for self-timer, drive mode, and maybe one or two other things too. So it still does have a small LCD on top, but um, I was, I'm really happy, you, Alex, you brought these up because this is another one of those cameras. I've bought three of these things. And the one flaw that they all have is the hand grip disintegrates. Mm -hmm. So they are on they are on eBay usually for $10. I'm not joking. Look uh, for these things. People will sell them as junk because the hand grip is literally crumb. Like it's not sticky like some cameras. It is literally falling off. But if you look at mine, I went on Amazon and I got a moldable plastic called Sugru, S-U-G-R-U. And I just made my own hand grip. And oh, cool. it's, it's rubber and cause I've molded it to my own hand. So like this camera is actually like custom contoured to my right hand. And it has that similar large grip, like Alex's nine and the seven has too. Um, for as great as the seven and nines are, they, they can get quite expensive, but these 600 and 650 SIs are probably the bargain of the century when it comes to autofocus Minolta's. I've got uh, my nine XI. I was I was shooting yeah. it last night um, at a concert, and uh, for, I was shooting that for the drive-by truckers. And uh, I don't know. I think the nine XI is probably the prettiest of all of the Maxim cameras. Yeah, it's got a unique look. Yeah, it's got the very streamlined. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it almost looks like some sort of science fiction fighter kind of a of a, of a camera. But it also goes up. I, I just did a quick check. It goes up to uh, twelve hundred for top speed. Twelve thousand. 12,000, yes, or 12,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They started doing that with the uh, XI series. I find the XI's too streamlined. I'm also a big fan of brutalist architecture, so that's why I really like this. <laughs> too streamlined. But, you know, kind of like back to what I was saying at the beginning of this about Minolta, is they always like kind of did like, they, they were creative. And I, I always love that about them. Um, I think they kind of got away from maybe a little bit of ethics. Uh, and with the, with the autofocus, you know, they got sued for basically yeah. stealing... Honeywell's um, Visitronic system, and that, that set them back. They got sued again from uh, Exxon. Uh, I think when we had Ira on, he commented that when Exxon first contacted Minolta about, we don't like you using the double X, 
they basically said, we'll license it to you for like a small amount. It was, it was like peanuts. They basically said, you can keep using it. You just got to pay us some kind of very, very minimal, you know, hundred thousand dollars. Let's just say, I don't know what it was, but they said no. And then they ended up going to court and they lost out and had to pay way more in fines than had they just like paid Exxon, whatever they were asking, you know, some small pittance or something like that. Another lawsuit too, Mike, over the XK. What was that? The XK camera was, uh, there was another lawsuit about the XK for some proprietary thing that they had uh, they had done with that too that predated the double x that one i don't know about but it wouldn't surprise me because it kind of felt like they were like the they were sort of like the kind of we we marched to the beat of our own drummer kind of company and for so many of these cameras i mean it, it works out well you know um you know i really don't want to jump in but i love the auto wide you know i think this is a really really nice camera uh it had a built-in 2.8 35 millimeter lens with with preference to wide uh, depth of field. The focus has three click stops for portrait group and scenery. You can basically focus by feel and there's no range finder. It's got a large and bright viewfinder. It's very, very easy to use. Meg, you were talking about maybe wanting to get the CL, the Minolta CL. And I think Anthony, yeah. you had asked about that. That was the, the Leica slash Minolta collaboration that they did in 72. Um, I've never handled one myself, but Basically, Minolta really still wanted to get back into the kind of high-end rangefinder game, perhaps maybe because the Super A maybe didn't do as well as they had thought. So they wanted to maybe partner with a German company. And Leica was realizing that the Japanese were, were much better at mass production. So they wanted to partner with a Japanese company. Coincidentally, that was one year before Zeiss sold the contacts brand to Yashica and they started working on the contacts SLRs. But apparently the Minolta CL and the Leica CL came out a couple months apart from each other. Although they were essentially the exact same camera, Minolta made the, the Minoltas and um, Leica or the, the German Leicas were made in Wetzlar. I think they later transitioned over to Singapore or something like that. But um, they did too good of a job. The cameras were so good, it started cutting into Leica's M-series um, sales. So they're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> this was supposed to be our economic camera, and it's starting to eat into our... Because um... you guys remember at the time, yeah, Leica had the Leica Flex, but they, they were not an SLR company. Lights was still very much a rangefinder company, and the M was their, their, their meat and potatoes camera. Uh, they just kind of wanted a little bit of extra gravy on the side. Well, when the gravy is starting to outsell your primary product, that's a problem. So um, I think that's kind of what ended that relationship. But um, the, the Leica Flex SLRs that Lights had been making since the 60s, supposedly they lost money on every camera they sold. Uh, the camera was just way too expensive. It was over-engineered. It was difficult to produce, but they just wanted to get an SLR out there. They weren't making any money. They already had this partnership with Minolta with the CL. And what a lot of people don't get right, but I've read about this quite a bit, the XE7 was the basis for the R3, the Leica R3. But this camera came first. So it is not true to say that Leica and Minolta worked on this camera together. Minolta made the XE7. And what's it called in Japan? Is it the XE1? XE. Just the XE. The XE. Okay. So the XE7 is the North American camera. This is 100% of Minolta. Made for Minolta by Minolta. But Leica Lights was so impressed with it 
they wanted to build their next SLR out of the chassis of this. So the cameras are very similar internal, but they do use a completely different lens mount and a completely different exposure metering system. The electronics are totally different. The only thing similar between the R3 and the XE7 is the Copal square shutter. Right. And the general overall look of the body. But you you dig into it. Every single circuit board in an R3 different. is lights. Every single circuit board inside an XE7 is Minolta. The XE7 used a CLC system and the R3 used its own metering system. Yeah, you can't adapt the lenses, at least not easily. Nope. So they are technically, yes, you could say they share some DNA, but I've read online a lot of people incorrectly say, get the XE7, it's got like a DNA in it. And that's just simply not true. It's a little bit more true for the R4, whereas the XD11 was built already after that partnership was created. Uh, but still, if I remember, Alex, you might know better than I do. They, the R4 didn't even come out until like two years after the XD11 did, right? It, it That's was, right. Yeah. The, uh, so the Minolta and the Leica, um, the XE7 and the R3, the R4 and the XD are are closer to being cousins right. than brother and sister. So they have they have some shared DNA, some shared design language. Again, you have that Copal Square shutter, but completely different cameras. So was it some similar to what happened, you know, a few decades earlier with the uh, Leica three and then the copies or the clones of the Leicas made by Minolta in that they were, they kind of shared, maybe not DNA, but at least design similarities. The roles kind of reversed in the seventies. They weren't working together, but they probably share approximately the same amount with each other is my guess. Cause really, really the R3 and the XC7 are two completely different cameras. There is very little that's the same other than like what Alex said is the shutter. Minolta had no connection to lights then. So it's not true to say that they're cousins at all, but they're close enough to where they probably are close, like, you know, functionality wise. And then lights use that same chassis for the R4 all the way through the R7. So it, in theory, you could, you could argue that the Minolta DNA continued all the way to the R7. But once again, there's almost nothing Minolta about the R series SLRs as is there's nothing lights about the Minolta XE or XDs. But I will say they're great cameras, both of them. Even though lights' metering system was superior, there is certainly nothing wrong with Minolta's CLC system because it was very good too. I would take the CLC system over the light system any day. Well, and not only that, the lenses are like one tenth the price. <laughs> That's right. And some of the lenses are actually do share a similar optical design. Yeah. Some of the raw core lenses and that even carried on into some of the early um, autofocus lenses as well. You might get lucky and find an R3 or an R4 body, 150, maybe if you're lucky. But you're going to be paying through the nose for right. those three cam lenses. You're going to pay $500 for the lens. Yeah, you're looking at about $600 for like a three cam yeah. F2 Sumicron. Part of me thinks, hey, I'll get an R, even an R6. They're not cheap, but crap tack a three cam like my brother's rebuilding his like r kit I mean, I'm, I'm sort of following this journey kind of you know time maybe you shouldn't have sold your kit back in 2009 <laughs> and uh he's like just the price of lenses like i just yeah it's insane i recently mule from the dealer a, a 135 2.8 elmer and it's like 400 bucks canadian so it's about Almost 300 US. You can blame the Cine guys on that one. They're, they're using them for movies. And, uh, yeah. And yeah. it's made them a little bit 
harder to get hold of. But I, I fully agree with you, Bill. It's 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 actually I, I got my R three and then went looking for a lens and thought, okay, this is not a system I'm going to build up. I've got a full range of Nikon and with Nikon's and, and and so on. I'm not going to I'm not going <laughs> to start building this other system. But I do want the uh, I did want the fifty millimeter at least to have to, to, to try out with the R three, uh, which is currently the whole the whole kit's currently um, getting a CLA with. Uh, and the shutter uh, realigned with uh, Jess at the moment. So Wayne Wayne pointed out that the shutter was the Copal CLS, not the Copal Square, but uh, they are the same within the, the lights and Minolta. So uh, great shutters. Is there anybody here that hasn't talked about their favorite Minolta? Robert, do you have one? I know you're not. I don't think you have any Minoltas, but you have to come across one you've liked, right? Well, I've I've had Minoltas over the years. I used to have a couple of the auto cords. I also had the X, XK at one time with the motor. And um, I had some SRTs, et cetera, over the years. Right now, all I have in Minolta are sub minis. That's all I have. I have nothing in 35. I gave you my last 35. Yeah, yeah, it's over here. And uh, but I have mostly, I have just mostly sub minis. You know, I have their Minoltas and their Conans. I think, wasn't the Conan the precursor to the Minolta? Yes. 16s? Yeah. Conans have to be the heaviest small camera in the world i mean it's smaller than a pack of cigarettes you put that in a sock and walk around town you could kill anybody with it <laughs> they are heavy i mean they are heavy you ever hold a whitaker micro six yeah, i've got a couple of those too yeah this thing is literally a piece of metal it is a yes. tube of metal i mean it's the conan is the same way the conan is actually a little <laughs> bit smaller yet it's so heavy and the minota was the the, the progress progressive model of the conan and it's completely different it's aluminum it's lightweight etc cetera, etc cetera. but the uh the conans are indestructible i mean you could throw them down a flight of stairs yeah over. but i've got i've got some nice ones of those i've got some nice minotas too the colored ones and all this kind of stuff but a lot of gold uh, ones and things like that but i find them fascinating the engineering is, is really first rate on all of them yeah. all companies are that way you look at the engineering and you just marvel at what they can put in these little packages you know it's amazing sometimes but that's all I have in Minolta right now. Okay. Well, cool. I think, so we've gone through everybody. Uh, Alex had to drop off. Um, we're getting close to winding down here. So does anybody have any questions Minolta related or not? Any quick gas pickups? What do you have, Wayne? I, I, it looks like a record album. These are records. Minolta Disco. <laughs> Minolta Disco. <laughs> what? That's cool. What is that? was made oh to commemorate the fifth anniversary of the Dutch importer. It's got a picture Leaf. of the Minolta disc camera on the back. It's the seven, and they, they're all holding a disc camera as well. Oh my. Lady has a disc seven with a selfie stick. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> what kind of music? Is it disco music? It's like what is that? What does that say in English? Um, Something like space to the future. <laughs> that is, that has got to be one of the most obscure pieces of ephemera I've ever seen. That is superb. This itself. Oh my! Oh my. <laughs> it looks like a, it, it looks like an oversized. Um, oh my god! This camera disc. It's the disc film camera film. Yeah. <laughs> that is cool. And, oh, yeah. I so want that now. I so want that. <laughs> That is super cool. <laughs> the music is terrible. It's 
Um, <laughs> yeah, they're original synthesizer hits and bad um, covers of synth music. Sadly. Wow. There's I'm really. <laughs> that is really, really release, cool. But it's butchered. Cool. Are the lyrics about taking photos or are they... No, it's just... Um, Chariots of Fire from Angelis. Um, Chariots of Fire. Jean from Jean Chajar. Star Wars theme. Nice. <laughs> They're all synthesizer covers. Oh my. That is an eight. I want to hear it. Incredibly <laughs> eight. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't think anybody's going to beat that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's 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 taking the cake. That one. <laughs> I I thought I I thought I'd have a weird Minolta to show, uh, but this doesn't even compare. But I have this thing called the Minolta Freedom Zoom 105i, and it's this little. It looks like a tiny projector. It's got a white kind of pearlescent body, and I've never actually tried this camera, but. The gimmicky feature that it had supposedly is it was an auto zoom camera, not autofocus, auto zoom. So the camera would try to detect what you were taking a picture of. So like if you pointed it at a person, it would attempt to focus in to get a proper headshot every time. So I, I can't imagine the struggle you must have with this camera trying to zoom in without like, you know, you wanting to or not, but uh, clearly an unwanted feature, but uh, at least they gave it kind of a funky, it, it also came in black too, but I like this white pearlescent body, but maybe one day I'll do a review of it and I'll tell you, but I, I'm just going to throw in the garbage because it's not as cool as a Minolta disco record. <laughs> Is that 35 or APS? Yeah, no, it's 35. It's 35 millimeter. It came out in the eighties. In terms of APS, I don't feel like standing up to get it, but the Minolta Vectus S1 was their uh, interchangeable lens SLR system, and it's really good. I actually did a review of that on my site. So if anybody made APS film, well, have you been talking to Adam Paul? He's he's getting really close to making his own. So Who is he? he we, he's been on the show a couple times and he's shown us some prototypes. He's figured out a way to cut film and actually create the correct perforations in the film because there's two perforations per frame and he's able to copy that exactly. The challenge is so many of the APS cameras expect the magnetic IX line to be there and he obviously can't recreate that. So the, the only APS cameras that'll work in are like the really, really basic ones. But uh, oh. he's 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 figuring it out. So maybe one day we'll have some fresh uh, Portra or T Max and APS to play with. Mike Gutterman will be happy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anybody else? Any other pickups? Anything fun? I'm looking forward to the Bronica takeover episode in the future. So Bronica, I've, I've got <laughs> my. Uh, I had an SQ, the modern Bronicas, but I just it's the first time I I'm really motivated by the looks more than anything else that I got this camera just. We talked about that on an earlier episode. There's a way to take the helicoid out on that. Yes. Yeah. The whole thing comes out. The it's whole a thing separate comes piece. Out. Yeah. And then there's a way to, I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but um, there's a way to like adapt other lenses and put it like inside the camera or something. And you can shoot like 35 millimeter lenses on that thing or something. I don't. It's, I don't it's quite possible that the unique thing was that the mirror goes down instead of right. up. And so the lens. Yeah really sits well into the body which i think looks looks beautiful so yeah we had someone on the show i can't remember who it was it was talking about that one of the earlier episodes uh we definitely spent a lot more time on monolta than we did Fotlander last week but that's okay uh we had a lot to talk about 
There's so many cool models. I didn't even get to talk about the X700 that I shot this past weekend, that um, real fantastic camera. I was worried about the capacitor issue that plagues a lot of those, but this one seems to be okay. I've been trying to get an SR2 for a really, really long time, which was Minolta's very, very first SLR, but they are very hard to come by. So I settled on an SR3, which is basically the same camera. It just has the clip-on meter thingy, which I don't have the meter for. Uh, the SR3s are very, very nice. Um, and then the last one I brought out in case it came up was this Uniomat, which is a little small rangefinder. What I like about it is it's one of those cameras that has the one one thousandth shutter speed, even though it's a leaf shutter. And it's able to accomplish that by swiveling the shutter blades so that you cannot shoot one one thousandth wide open. It'll only work when it's slightly stopped down. Uh, but I think it's a very handsome, cleanly designed camera. It doesn't show up too much on the screen, but it actually has a gray leather at body. I think it's a very, very handsome camera. And, you know, like all the Minolta's of the era, it has a fast and very, very sharp rock core lens on it. So there's probably so many others that we could be talking about that are all great. You really can't go wrong with Minolta, honestly. And it's a shame they're not still around, you know, but. I do have one question. Um, I know Konica and Minolta kind of teamed up together, you know, much later. Did they ever make a serious camera together under the Konica Minolta brand? They had the digital cameras that they tried to do, but it was too little, too not, late. I mean, but not still. Konica bought Minolta because they wanted their copier stuff. Yeah, I mean that was their their major business for both companies oh, was actually okay. not cameras as much as it was office products. So Konica was a leader in office products, and Minolta had yeah. uh, had a lot of the same technology. So that was the merger was not necessarily for cameras, but but for the office division. The very first Sony Alpha DSLR had the exact same body as the last Konica Minolta DSLR. It was, I don't think Sony had enough time to create something from scratch. Yeah, the A350s, the, the Minolta A-mount lenses all fit those cameras. And then there were adapters that let you convert the, uh, the A-mount to the Sony mount if you wanted to. Well, I think that's a good point to end. We're, we're coming up on two hours. So as always, it's great to see so many people on. Uh, Meg, thank you for coming. It's always nice to see new listeners. You're welcome back anytime. This highlighting of one brand per episode, I think is going pretty well. Uh, it kind of helps us have an idea what we're going to talk about, even though we may venture into top cons and you know, whoever knows what else. But that's the benefit of the open source concept. Uh, I know, Mario, with your podcast, you kind of keep more to prearranged questions, which, honest to God, is the smart way to go about it. Because sometimes massaging this open source editing into a, a listenable end product uh, can be quite a challenge. But it's cool to have something different. You know, we have a lot of great podcasts out there that all have Absolutely. kind of a different niche. You know, different people focus on different things. So we're always welcome to have you on. Appreciate you guys' podcast because, like, I think you guys are called the, the nerdiest podcast, uh, yeah. film photography podcast. And I, I learn a lot from everybody that's on here. So thank <laughs> you guys. Yeah, that's great. Wayne, it's great to, good to see you over from Belgium. Bob, always, always nice to see you. Howard, Bill, Alex had to drop off. So I, I, I want to know if I, if how much does the service cost where I send Mike Ekman a camera and he makes a molded Sugru grip for it <laughs> in his handshape? My handshape? His handshape, yeah. <laughs> or you could get celebrities to mold them, you know, just. Does the word plaster caster mean anything? Yeah. To anybody? <laughs> we won't go any further. Oh, there. boy. <laughs>
All right. Well, that's a good spot to end. <laughs> uh, we don't have anything necessarily planned for the next episode. We're still up in the air, but we're going to do about the European episode. But even, whether we do or whether we don't, we're going to be back with more nerdy photography podcast camera discussion. Uh, I look forward to seeing what types of conversations we have in future episodes, but we need you to join us to steer us in the right direction. Keep us on track, ask questions. We welcome anybody, no matter how long you've been shooting film or how little, if you have any questions, please don't be intimidated. We actually like when newer people join us. So it's not just a bunch of us old farts talking about the same brands over and over again. We will be back in two weeks. As always, pay attention to either my website, the Camerosity Podcast Facebook page, or our Instagram page for show announcements. But generally, we're starting to get them out about two to three days before we record so that everybody has the link. So thank you guys for coming. You guys all have a great night. And uh, hopefully you enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye, everybody. Good night. Good night. Take care. Bye, Good everyone. Night. Thank Good you. Night. Bye.